I think one of the biggest questions that I get on a weekly basis from folks is, how do you get your movie seen? How do you get your movies made? And I've tried to share on the show uh, the steps that I went through to get 12KM seen uh, and to get 12KM in the hands of producers uh, and ultimately get 12KM into the position where it's being developed. Now, I've shared my story of how I got there, and you guys can go back and listen to those older episodes. But remember that my story worked in my special case at that time in the industry and with the environment and the access that I was able to get my hands on. It's different for everybody. So there isn't a right way. There aren't steps to take uh, to get your movie made, to get your movie in the right hands. But what I've been wanting to do for a while is to get somebody on the show that can give you a bit of insight on how they make films. As a producer, how he finds films, how he puts them together, the type of movies that he likes to make, and really sort of dig deeper into the career of a producer because a lot of folks don't really know what that job means, right? At surface value, producer is the person that gets the movie made, right? And so when you're coming at it from an indie from an indie world, you're like, okay, so you hire the crew, you know the crew, you know the people, you know the locations, you know how to figure that stuff out. Oh, and you have access to actors. Well, there's so much more involved with producing and understanding the world of finance, understanding what happens behind the scenes on films. And so a lot of this stuff has been new for me over the past few years uh, as I've got more access uh, into Hollywood and I've got two films in development. I start to learn a lot more behind the scenes stuff, a lot more about what goes into the day-to-day -day of producing. Uh, and a lot of it I had no idea about. And so on today's episode, I wanted to get our guest on for quite some time now for two reasons. One, I wanted to give you guys an update on what's happening with 12KM. Today's show is the definitive update on what's happening with that movie. I'm finally able to tell you guys on air who I'm working with and what's happening with that. So stick around for that. And two, I wanted to get him on the show because he produces the type of films that I love. He's the type of producer that makes those movies that we remember, those movies that stick with you, those movies that really hit you in the gut. Um, and as I talk about, and he gives me a little bit of shit about on the show, movies that make me cry, which is a lot. <laughs> uh, so I'm very excited, very, very excited to introduce today's guest, Mr. Michael Pruss. He is a film producer now working for Scott Free. He has been a film producer at Scott Free for about seven years. And yes, Scott Free is developing 12KM. I met Mike years ago. Uh, he saw our short film. We really connected on the story. He loved the piece. I've been told that Ridley's seen the piece, which is crazy to me. It's fucking mind-blowing. And this is that thing that I haven't been able to tell you in a while. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, 12KM is in development. It takes time for these things to go. Uh, so, you know, it could take years for 12KM to get off the ground. I don't necessarily think it's going to be the first film. I think that we're going to be doing who's there first, and then we'll see how 12KM develops after that. But I am incredibly excited 
to be uh, even able to step in the offices of Scott Free. Uh, of course, if you guys don't know what Scott Free is, it is Ridley Scott's company. It is Tony Scott's, the late, great Tony Scott's company. Um, and um, the Ridley Scott label, the Ridley Scott brand has created amazing films, not just Ridley's films, but other directors that have done amazing work for there. And it's just an honor of mine to be in that lineup and to have a film that is in development with them. So finally, the sigh of relief that I'm able to actually tell you guys this on air. Uh, I can't wait to have Mike on. He's going to talk a lot about the type of films that he does. We're going to talk a little bit about how we met. Um, and I've known Mike for years now, and I'm happy to say that he's a great friend and a guy that I cannot wait to have on my team and supporting me with a film. So big shout out for today's episode, finally, everybody. And that's why I'm releasing it at the end of the week. We have so many great episodes up in the queue, and I just did this interview today, which is, what day is today? Wednesday, so it's the 31st. Just did it today, and I don't want this episode to get lost in the mix. So I'm dropping it. Um, so get ready. You guys have been asking for it. You've been asking to know what's going on with 12KM. You've been asking to know uh, how to get your movies seen by producers. We get into that on the show. We talk about all that stuff. We talk about our love of Japan. We talk about our love of Tokyo. Uh, talk about our love of noir filmmaking. Um, so it's a great episode, everybody. Big shout out to those of you who have been following me on Instagram at Mike Petchy or following the podcast Instagram at In Love With The Process Pod. That's In Love With The Process P-O-D on Instagram. There you guys have been not only suggesting guests for the show, but you've been giving feedback on episodes. You guys have been incredibly excited about uh, getting t-shirts from us, about being involved. I love that about this podcast, building this community of like-minded filmmakers, like-minded artists, like-minded chefs, everybody that really sort of appreciates um, that ambition, that the goal of walking away from how things are normally done, getting out of that nine to five lifestyle is chasing your dreams. And I am just not only happy with the people that I have on the show and the amazing people that I can now call friends because of the show, uh, but also the fans and those of you who continuously reach out, those of you who continually support me, you know who you are. I've tried to give you guys as much time as I can, um, and I appreciate all the feedback. So if you want to be a bigger part of the show, make sure you follow me on Instagram and feel free to write to me. I get to them. Sometimes they get lost in a queue of, of messages that I takes me weeks to get through, but I try to get through each and every message that's sent. Um, so I love you guys. I appreciate you guys. And uh, without further ado, let's not put it off. I know you guys have been waiting for this episode. So let's get into it. So turn up those noise canceling headphones, find a nice comfy seat uh, and, and nestle in, man, because uh, we're going to give you a bunch of really good stuff on the show. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the brand new episode of In Love With The Process.
Hey, Mike, thanks for being on the show, dude. Of course. Great to uh, be talking with you, uh, Mike, my, my namesake, and uh, <laughs> thrilled, thrilled, thrilled to be uh, catching up on life and art and everything in between. <laughs> uh, yeah, dude, it's been a while. Uh, we've been trying to make this work, and I'm very excited to finally have you on. Uh, I got a lot to talk about. Uh, I want to get into um, a, your work as a producer. I also want to get into, I just watched uh, your latest film, Our Friend, last night. And uh, it was it was fucking heart wrenching, man. That movie was was fucking great, dude. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was uh, a real uh, labor of love. Uh, that film, um, you know, it took some some time to sort of you know mount it correctly, and uh, you know, frankly, really sort of be ready to make it. Uh, but you know, we're really we're really thrilled with it, and uh, uh, obviously, the film's been getting a terrific response, and uh, you know very happy that it's out there and it's really connecting with people that you know have have been through you know grief and loss but also know what great friendship is and you know have had great friends that have been there and um it's been really joyous to sort of you know get stories and feedback from people that have said gosh this was this was my life you know i see so much of my life in this so yeah it's been uh uh, it's been a good one and, um, you know, very, very uh, grateful that you watched it. Yeah, I uh, went and I watched it by myself and uh, Gina, my girlfriend, would come in and she just sort of peek at me and it's like, were you crying? I'm like, no, I wasn't crying in here. No, this is a serious movie. <laughs> but it, yeah, it really hit me, dude. It was, uh, there was a bunch of really great sequences in it. And I, I, we'll get into that. Um, the place I want to start for those listening, um, I know that uh, you're like, I think our second producer that we've had on the show. So oftentimes I'll have people asking a lot of questions about producers and how that, uh, what that job's like and how to meet producers. So there's a bunch of different questions that I'd love to get into, but let, let's start at the beginning. How did you, why producing? What made you decide to become a producer, Mike? Well, um, there is no short answer, I think, to any of these questions, but I will try and be uh, pithy and as precise Dude, as it's I, a, it's as a podcast. Me. People will listen to us talk for hours. So go okay, I'll, I'll, exactly. Okay, I'll give you the three-hour version. No, um, I, I, uh, uh, the, the, short, the short of it is really is that um, I didn't come from an entertainment background. You know, my, my parents were both in the medical profession, mm. um, and I just, you know, didn't inherit any of their scientific uh, or mathematical prowess and i found myself just always being attracted to stories and storytelling even from a young age um from probably about six or seven years old i would you know just sit in my bedroom and read stories and sort of wonder about the world and i think you know that really became apparent and and clearer um as i got older and uh I studied English lit, uh, English literature at the University of London. Mm. You know, like any good English lit degree, you know, what it, what do you do with it? And I remember <laughs> my, my, my father saying to me, you know, I'm so glad you know all of Shakespeare, but like, who the hell is going to put you on a payroll? Um, <laughs> right. and he, he was a very practical man. My, my dad, uh, may he rest in peace. And, uh, I, uh, so I said to him, well, I, I'd like to, you know, I'd like to do something creative. And so, for a year, I, I actually worked as a tabloid journalist, believe it or not. For no a, way. I did, yeah, in London for a, a publication called the, the News of the World, which is uh, no longer exists, but is now the, uh, 
the Sunday Sun, uh, uh-huh. owned by the, the Murdoch Empire. And I guess what you do with a, an English degree is you correct spelling, punctuation, and grammar. Uh, and that's what I did uh, for a year of my life. And then I realized that, you know, reading other people's stories just made me even more uh, you know, sort of determined to sort of do mine and, and help sort of artists. And I applied to film school kind of on a whim. Um, I was, this was probably in 2002 and I was, uh, I was doing all sorts of odd jobs. Honestly, I sold pensions during the day for a bank. I DJed at night and I was putting <laughs> all this money away to try and save, for you know, whatever big life adventure I had ahead of me. And I, I just applied to film school on a whim. And as I, as I just mentioned, and I was lucky enough to get accepted into a few, I guess the English lit degree does hold some, uh, some weight. Um, and, uh, I, uh, I then realized, wow, a master's education in the U.S. is, is actually quite expensive. Um, so I saved uh, the, the savings I had coupled with some you know, generous uh, help from my parents and uh, a, a small fellowship allowed me to go to Chapman University to do my MFA in film and TV producing uh, between the years of 2003 and 2005. Uh, okay. And, that was really my gateway into sort of the American film business. And, you know, I, I didn't know anybody, you know, when I came to California, I'd, I'd been once on holiday, uh, you know, a family holiday. But uh, in my last semester of film school, uh, we did internships and we did it for, you know, for credit. And I was interning at DreamWorks, uh, mm. SG. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, I'm a huge believer in, in hard work and great attitude will get you, you know, very far in life. And I was making the tea and coffee, you know, obviously I come from a place that makes, you know, I should be good at making good cup of tea. And, uh, right. I, you know, the, the PG tips were, uh, were up to scratch. And, uh, I, you know, we, I Xerox scripts, read as many scripts as I could and just did, you know, the intern duties, you know, I know a hell of a lot about dry cleaning and dog grooming <laughs> and cupcake delivery. But what I think more than that was, it was just amazing to be in the infrastructure of uh, a studio like DreamWorks and obviously the brilliance of, of somebody like Steven Spielberg and, and his partners and just sort of soak that in and just even think about the possibilities of like, could I do this, you know, one day, you know, is there, is there a journey for me? And again, like, like with all things in life, um, timing and luck really do play a part, uh, as well as of course, you know, talent, hard work and all the other, you know, right. phrases we like to use. And I was actually about to go back to London. This was in the summer of 05 and I'd finished my internship and I was ready to sort of go back and look for a job in London. And the person I was working for left uh, quite abruptly. And I had a sort of a packed apartment, you know, I'd sold all my stuff. And the head of the story department at the time said to me, you know, would you like to, uh, would you like to work here? We've just been impressed with your, you know, with your work ethic and you stay late and get there early and, you know, the tea's good. (laughs) Um, And I said to her, I'd love to, but you know, I'm not, uh, I, I don't have the paperwork, you know, I'm just on a student visa and she sort of, you know, said to me, well, let's not worry about that. This is Steven Spielberg's company. And, um, that was my first job in the, in the entertainment industry. So I was a, a PA, uh, dash story department, uh, assistant, uh, for DreamWorks. And again, that was sort of my, my first, uh, my first segue into, uh, the, the film business uh, in the States. It's a great way. Talk about a great company to work for. It's a great way in, man. Like you said, you get to look around and see. You, I always say like just being a fly on a wall 
uh, it's worth its weight in gold to just see how people handle things, see people how how people handle stress, how people handle meetings, like all that stuff is incre- incredibly invaluable, right? It really, it really is. You know, there's a process of osmosis, isn't there? You know, to you know, I think in most endeavors, any endeavors, but I think particularly with a creative business like ours, you know, how do you make often you know n- the non tangible things tangible, and mm. how do you understand? the business side of it, as well as the artistic side, and really, you know, the reconciliation um, of those two things. And so, you know, being around at DreamWorks, uh, I, I got to read every script, I got to cover desks for assistance, I got to sort of listen to uh, listen on the phone calls and why movies were being made, how they were being made, who were they being made with, you know, what were the imperatives, you know, what was the urgency. Mm. And frankly also just educate myself more on on writers and directors and how hollywood worked and obviously 2005 was such a different wildly different time that you know than it is now in terms of the film business and distribution and yeah and so you know and i'm sure we can you know we can talk about that as well but all that to say I, i feel lucky i started in the american film business in hollywood at a time that was sort of still a very uh, it felt like a, an optimistic time and it felt like a time of, of sort of wonder still. And, and not to say that that's all gone now. I mean, it's certainly changed, but it always felt like I was sort of one step away from some kind of awesome, you know, new adventure. Mm-hmm. And, and not, not to say I'm old and jaded now and, and maybe, <laughs> you know, some of this is nostalgia talking. But um, as you as you rightly said, it, it was just sort of being in that infrastructure and being around, you know, Steven Spielberg and Jeffrey Katzenberg and David Geffen and, and, you know, all the people that he had employed to sort of run this company was, was very inspiring. And I, I, I took so many lessons from that and, and, and still do, frankly. So let's fast forward a bit. So you, you get that experience, which is amazing. And then uh, what was your first film? Like when did you, what was your first pr- film producing gig? Well, to sort of fill in the blanks a bit after DreamWorks, I, you know, which again was, was a very entry level job and I wasn't really yet even at the level of be, being an assistant to a, a top executive or a producer, but I, uh, I went back to the UK and I had a, uh, some personal sort of family things to deal with. And when I came back to the States, I realized that maybe this was the time to, to do something, uh, to kick on really. Mm-hmm. I managed to get myself an interview um, with a very, very uh, special guy called Jeff Steer, who had just been hired to run uh, one of the, he was one of the top creatives at Paramount Vantage. And this was the brand new division of Paramount that was doing their specialty work right. that was being run by John Lesher. Right. And I ended up sitting in front of Jeff Steer and he had just finished uh, uh, working for Anthony Miguel and Sidney Pollock and he'd produced with Ang Lee and he was just somebody whose resume was very, very special to me. And uh, I sat in front of him and he said to me, well, uh, he said, the good news for you is, he said, I, I do like Brits because I used to live in England. Uh, and he <laughs> said, uh, the bad news for you is, he said, you don't quite seem ready for the job. And I sort of, you know, had that sinking feeling. And then he said, so uh, what I will do is I'm going to give you a test. I want you to write some coverage for me. I want to see how you understand script, the script and structure and ideas and, you know, how we bring out, you know, themes in, in character behavior. I want you to write something really good for me. If you, uh, if you do it well, uh, we'll talk. And uh, if it's not, uh, you won't hear from me again. And I was like, oh, wow, okay. Um, no pressure. <laughs> so I, uh, 
he sent me a script. I forget what it was now, but I, you know, the English lit degree came in handy again. And um, I, I just wrote, you know, I spent three days doing it, barely slept and just handed him essentially what could have been a, a sort of a dissertation, I think, on the script. And thankfully, you know, he called me and said, all right, we know what we're doing. And, uh, uh, you know, let's let's jump in on this. So he was the person and it was a brand new company. And I mean, the films, Mike, you know, that we were making at that time, I still look at, look back with, with, you know, great remembrance. It was, you know, there will be blood, oh, yes. no country for old men and inconvenient yes. truth. Uh, all the work with Noah Bomback, you know, uh, Margot at the wedding. Oh yeah. It was a really special time uh, into the wild uh, with, with Sean Penn and Jeff was the executive on almost all of these projects. Wow. I would have, you know, access to his conversations, the budgets, the schedules. And he was such a kind, generous person. And he said to me, you know what, handle the assistant stuff and I will teach you what, you know, you need to know about this world. And he said, and not, and not just budgets and schedules, but how you handle agents, how you deal with managers, how you make deals, you know, our exposure points, our strengths, you know, everything that sort of you need to know as a producer and, and, mm. and that form the life cycle of a film so for a year and a half i you know the best advice i ever got early on was like shut up and listen <laughs> and you know for a year and a half i just literally tore it you know i literally just listened to him uh on those calls and looked at the budgets and asked him questions and he was generous with his time and, and expertise and you know we we made some incredible films together. And again, I wasn't I wasn't directly involved with them in terms of you know credit or producing. But I like to think that you know I helped him sort of succeed in his mission to you know for that studio to be making really special films with special filmmakers at that time. And you know, there's never really been a company like Paramount Vantage you know since then. So I would say that was the those were the real building blocks of my producing career with Jeff. And then mm. uh, thanks to him my first executive job um, where I could really start making a name for myself and, you know, having big involvement in films was at focus features with James Seamus and Andrew Carpen and John Lyons. And I, right, I, right. Moved, I moved there in 2007 and I, I got a creative executive job and it was, you know, it was a really competitive job to get. And thankfully Jeff had helped me. And I also think the experience at Paramount Vantage had helped me because obviously I'd worked on films that were similar to, uh, the kind of filmmaker-driven, material-driven films that Focus were making. Right. And started at Focus in LA, and the first film I, I worked on was Milk uh, with Gus Van Sant. Oh, and they cool. Threw, they threw me in the deep end on that, and I had to do all sorts of you know research and support for the producers, and there were tons of things that needed to be done on that film. And in addition to just being a kind of a junior executive and, you know, making sure that the studio's interests are, are, are protected and the, the film's on time and on budget. So again, people like Dan Jinks and Bruce Cohen and, and uh, Gus Van Sant and Dustin uh, Lance Black were all incredibly uh, patient and generous with their, their time. And that was the first film I really sort of truly, you know, felt like I had some ownership on from, from the studio side of things. And then I followed that up at Focus with a film called The American uh, with George Clooney that was directed by Anton Corbin. Amazing film, by the way. That movie's fantastic. I love that film. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was a that was a really that was a really interesting one to do because you know Control was such an excellent film, and you mm -hmm. know I've been up sure like you, Mike. I was a I was a huge Joy Division fan. Yeah, completely. So, yeah, yeah. 
you know, I it was such an interesting sort of process to see Anton go from, you know, this sort of small indie music driven character study to, you know, something that had a lot of those traits. I think, you know, the both of the films have a sort of existential underpinning and mm-hmm. you know, about somebody struggling with their identity, you know, in a changing world and and uh, and it was great to sort of go to, you know, have the chance to go to Italy and be on location and, and watch <laughs> Anton work with with George Clooney. And, and you know, again, the, the film may not be a, a perfect film, but I think it does a lot of things right. And it was a really good, a really good role for George. Um, and yeah. And then tonally, tonally, that movie's really fucking great. Didn't Anton started as a, he was a photographer initially, wasn't he? Like the director? He was. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And, and he, that's right. He was, he's a photographer and. Uh, he was like he, a rock photographer, I think. It's exactly, right. yeah, exactly yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. his tone in that is really phenomenal. And being someone that started as a photographer as well, like you can really see his voice sort of come through. Control was such a fucking great breakout for him. I remember knowing him prior to that because of music video world and the photography stuff and then watched control and i was like man this movie is really great and and very intense and then uh to see his follow-up which was essentially an assassin movie with george clooney in 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 italy like he was saying Uh, i thought that movie was just wonderfully understated it was very much like a 1970s old school um spy thriller and and uh, assassin movie and i thought it was uh, Fucking fantastic, dude. I love that movie. I forgot all about that one. Yeah, no, it, it, you know, it sort of, it went under the radar a bit. And I think, I, you know, and I, I'm not sure if I, I think people were probably expecting it to be, it was, it was, it was in the days where I think trailers maybe sort of, I don't want to say cheated what the film was a bit more, but <laughs> yeah. they maybe yeah, oversold what it was a bit more. <laughs> and, you know, obviously we can't do that now because social media, you can get found out in about 30 seconds on that. But <laughs> I think we sold it a bit more as sort of like, this is George Clooney's doing Born in, you know, in Italy. And uh, it definitely wasn't. It was a sort of reflective existential, <laughs> you know, piece of, piece of sort of, you know, loneliness. And, uh, and, and it was very, it was very funny to sort of, read some of the the comments and and you know i remember you know i remember going to the theater actually i went to see it at the arc light just with the crowd and you know some people really dug it and then there was a lady behind me that uh, <laughs> i sort of got up and she was like well that was a big waste of money nothing happened <laughs> i love audience reactions like that i think the last one that i really enjoyed was when i went and saw um it comes at night and mm. and that whole build up to, to where nothing really comes at night, and I remember this guy standing up in front of me going "fuck," and he was just so mad at the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and I laughed. I, I forget who I was with. I don't know if it was with Will. And I was just like, if we get a reaction like that during our movies, that's just as good as getting as getting a, a standing ovation because <laughs> you're getting such a good response out of people, you know? Ex- exactly. You know, and it, but it's you know you make a really good point, which is not every movie is made for every person, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, you, you have to, you know, you have to find your, you know, you, you, as I think as a producer, you, you have to sort of be malleable and flexible and you can't just be a, you know, a one trick pony and make the same films over again, but also, you know, you have to have a sort of identity and know really what you're excited about and what you want to do. And I think, you know, one of the things that I love about producing is, that it can be making films, you should make entertaining films, but you should, you also have a responsibility, in my opinion, to enlighten people and show them maybe things about the world or ideas or 
philosophy or whatever it is that maybe they haven't thought of before. And again, I'm not in a business of making polemical films in any way, shape or form, but I do really like um, shining lights on things that are different and, you know, maybe trying to approach stories from uh, a slightly different way that feels a little subversive, uh, especially in a world now where I truly think that, you know, our, creative culture is, has been so sterilized yeah right? totally and totally. there's such there's so many reasons for that and you know we don't need to go into them all but when i see filmmaking that's bold or ambitious or something different it may not work fully but you applaud the ambition you know and you yeah. applaud the fact that somebody's doing something a little bit different rather than making something that just feels like a by the numbers, you know, made for whoever it is. And it just feels kind of down the middle and disposable, you know, and I think I I don't want to support that part of our culture. I hope our, you know, culture will rebound and people will want to go to the movies and be entertained, but they want to be challenged, you know, and they want to have a chat for two, you know, an hour after when we can all get together again after the pandemic is over and like we used to and talk about movies and art and life over a drink, you know? Yeah, no, totally, man. Like, I, I I completely agree with you. I think a lot of that has been strangely lost because as a filmmaker myself, it's you're you're trying to convey some sort of experience that you've witnessed or you've had or you or a feeling that you have when you read a story or you're you're trying to take some sort of excitement or fascination that you initially feel and then translate that into the language of cinema and try to get the audience to feel somewhat close to whatever reaction that you felt the first time and i i think that for me it's all about finding your voice with that and having a support team around you that really sort of champions that voice and pushes that voice and of course you got to make movies that are going to make the money back like i'm i'm never the type of person that's like hey give me a bunch of cash and <laughs> walk away and i'm never going to give them the money back you have to you have to be a good business person with this stuff but at the same token i think you have to remember that we're we're sharing life stories with people. We're sharing experiences with people uh, to hopefully get them to feel something different, like you were saying, but also to change their outlook and their opinion on on specific things because it's it's refreshing to do that. Like we all have a habit of sort of climbing into our own little worlds and we, you know, create out of self-defense, like our own set of rules, like I'm not going to do this and I've done that before and that's terrible. And so you end up like shelling yourself the older you get. And I always find it really refreshing to stumble upon a new experience and be forced into a new experience and then have that shell cracked or broken again and go like, all right, the world isn't shit. (laughs) Like there is something fascinating that I don't know anything about. And that, that I've always found really exciting about filmmaking as a director Mm -hmm. and that's what i find interesting about your films that you do as you go through your catalog is you feel like with all of the films there's a voice to it there's a there's a voice that it's coming from and it doesn't necessarily feel like you guys are you know chasing the the topic of the month you know what i mean which i I think is great yeah i i i I agree and I'm, i'm thank you for you know Thank you for saying that. And I, you know, I think whether it's our friend or, you know, Earthquake Bird was a, a bilingual film set in, you know, in Japan in the 80s about, you know, somebody who was struggling, you know, with their identity and had run away from, you know, something. And, or whether it was, you know, American Woman. I mean, it's a, you know, beautiful script by Brad Inglesby that, mm-hmm. you know, directed by Jake Scott. I, I've just always been, 
I think I've always been attracted to sort of characters that are sort of struggling with something and are and are transforming their lives or hope to transform their lives in in some way. Completely. And, and you know, I I'm just interested also in the displacement of of people, um, you know, set against maybe their set against a new culture or a, a, a new landscape, you know, and I think it's particularly Earthquake Bird really spoke to me as a, you know, when I read it, um, the, the novel by Susanna Jones, because it was about somebody who had obviously run away from something, but it sort of refused to ever acknowledge that mm-hmm. and, you know, had sort of created a whole new life and narrative for herself. But the past does come back to to eventually to get you you know i think consciously or or subconsciously and i i think that's something that's always interested me just thematically of sort of how we often try to sort of outrun um the truth of our lives sometimes and sort of how we um you know we'll we'll put sort of band-aids on or we'll put you know kind of blinders on to sort of see our own reality you know to see the only the things that we want to see and our own reality where sort of the truth can be something completely different and um yeah that's been a that has been a recurring theme uh in in some of the the films i've i've worked on and i wouldn't say it's the only thing obviously movies are about uh, they're not just about one thing you right, know, they're about right. a lot of things but it, it is something you know that is interesting to me as is frankly as is also grief and loss you know and that's something that i went through at a very young age when my brother you know died very suddenly uh when he was 18 years old in an accident and mm-hmm. and i was 25 and it really you know it really does something to you like the journey of grief and loss and sort of like the ghosts of that and you know you get through it but you never quite get over it and yeah, you're yeah. and you're sort of haunted by it you know and we've all we you know all of us have been through or most of us have been through loss and grief and i that's always something that's interested me as well is sort of how do we make sense of the world after sort of you know events that that would be described as as traumatic or difficult or or life altering and how do we understand our lives and uh, try and make sense of them again you know and, and mm-hmm. frankly find a way forward yeah no totally man and it i'm also incredibly fascinated with um how we internalize these things and and how we use you know basically our inner voice is our guidance through all this stuff and our inner voice is just it's like this <clears throat> it's this collection of our experiences. It's our collection of our fears and, and our ambitions. And it, it is this, you know, we're constantly turning inside of our head to this voice for guidance for things. And I'm fascinated with, with uh, the difference between who people are inside themselves and then that person that they project on the outside and then how, what they're doing affects the people around them and how that affects, um, their environment too. And when you see someone go through loss or if you've been through loss, everybody's going to. So strap in people because you're eventually going to have to deal with it. Um, It's fascinating to see that struggle, that internalization that has to happen and that sort of safety mechanism that happens where you're trying to put the pieces back together and you're trying to find what the new definition of, of your world is and then how that's affecting the people around you and then that in itself becomes its own story. And it's really fucking interesting to me. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, it, it, it is. And I think, 
you know, in, in so doing, you're probably as an artist or a creator or a writer or a painter, whatever you are, you're probably going to create something that is, uh, you know, that, that you hope is, is personal, but it also speaks to a kind of greater universal truth sometimes. And I think there's nothing, there's nothing better than making a piece of art and having somebody just say, you know what, I saw a little bit myself in that and I understood a little bit more, you know, you know, thank you for shedding light on something that I hadn't ever thought about before, you know? And again, I think when you bring your own personality to something and, you know, it's always, as you said so rightly, there's always a line between art and commerce. You can't just make, you know, stuff and and forget that, you know what, somebody's paying you and somebody's paying for it. And, you you know, you, you, I mean, maybe there are, there are a handful of filmmakers in the world that, that could probably do that. I mean, not many, Um, but for, for most of us, you know, lay men and lay women, you know, we have to, uh, always find that balance between, I think, trying to do something interesting and artistic and the intentions, you know, need to be pure versus, you know, who's going to see it, who's going to buy it. And, you know, how do we get this, you know, out there to, to a wide audience and hopefully they find it again, that there's such a, there are so many variables you yeah. know, in that process and of, of how films become, you know, quote unquote, uh, successful. And, and I, I'm also a big believer in there's never one definition of success either. Mm. You know? mm-hmm. So I think that's, uh, that's something I've really learned over the years. You know, are you defining yourself by box office or reviews or both, or are you defining it by the fact that, you know, your, your uncle absolutely loved it when nobody else did, or <laughs> you know, you've, you've, you're, you're embarrassed by the film, but everybody in the world loved it, you know? So what, what is it that sort of, uh, you know, what, what defines that? And I think there's, that's a great thing with art, isn't it? Is that there are a lot of moving pieces and there's never one answer. Yeah, no, totally, totally. And and for me, I mean, we've talked about this, but for, for me, it took, it took literally being in intensive care to sort of wrap my head around that and sort of understand what, uh, what, I value from from making movies, what I value from doing this sort of stuff. And mm-hmm. and for me, it ended up becoming more about the experience in general. I think mm-hmm. the, the actual act of making these films and the connections that you make and the life experience that you create and and then are inspired by when you're making these movies, uh, I, th- I think I find fulfillment in that. And of course, I want to make movies that people like. And of course, I want to make movies that make money. But at the end of the day, I feel like as long as I'm getting that fulfillment personally, then it's, you know, it's less of a heartbreak if I don't fill one of those like ungodly, you know, mm-hmm. you know, lottery tickets, like a scratch fucking lottery ticket and suddenly make a, you know, a $10 million income, you know, like it, it's, it's just, I think that for me, it just became about the experience. So I wanted to take a quick break to uh, talk a little bit about sponsors. We're just going to do a few sponsors for this special episode. Actually, I'm just going to do one sponsor for this uh, this uh, episode uh, because these guys have been with me since the beginning. I cut 12 cam on one of their computers. They were on set. They helped finance the Who's There uh, proof of concept. I cannot say enough great things about this company. And they have just signed on to be a yearly sponsor once again for the podcast. 
uh, my good friends over at Puget Systems. If you're a filmmaker, if you're a photographer, if you're just a video gamer and you realize that your computer's not fast enough anymore, you got to get something new. It, you're getting that pinwheel of fucking death, right? You know what I'm talking about. Uh, do yourself a favor, head on over to PugetSystems.com. There you can build yourself a custom PC. You can have these guys put together a custom PC for you. Because I know how uh, threatening and how uh, intense putting together or building your own PC can be. Am I buying the right hardware? Am I putting it together the right way? I don't know what the fuck I'm doing, right? That's most of us. I used to know how to build computers really well. These days, I don't know if I still do, right? And so when I was on the market for something new, I no longer wanted to be indebted to the bigger industry computer manufacturers that sort of controlled the market for years. Uh, I was relieved to see that Adobe was like, guess what? We are also on PC and ProRes is also on PC and all this stuff's on PC. So that opened up the world to me because I knew that my money could be better spent instead of being spent on advertising and a marketing budget, it was spent on actual hardware. It was spent on stuff that was going to make my machine try to keep up with me. Because if you're a true artist with what you're doing, you're always pushing the limits of the gear you have, right? I don't know how many times I've got a, a, a video sequence where I've got like how many tracks of different format video, how many tracks of stills, how many tracks of different format audio, and you want this thing to run seamlessly. You don't want a delay when you're hitting that space bar, right? Uh, so Puget Systems, I tasked them years ago with building me something that can keep up with it. And since then, they've built me amazing 4K machines. I've cut everything you see from my work on a Puget PC. Let me just say that again. All of my work has been cut on a PC. And I just don't do an in-house. I also outsource. So I'm able to collaborate with remote sound mixers, remote effects people, remote colorists, Company 3, all these different really great companies that I work with. I'm able to make my timeline, my sequence on a PC, integrate with theirs on a Mac. Okay, so it can be done. Go to PugetSystems.com. They are a great resource if you're trying to figure out how to make things work on your own. If you don't live in the US, you can pay them as a consultant to help build the system remotely because they don't ship outside the country. So I know a lot of our listeners are from the UK. I know a lot of our listeners are from Australia and Germany. Uh, if you want a Puget system, reach out to them and hire them as a consultant and they will help you build the system with the parts and stuff that is comparable to the systems that they make, right? Can't say enough great things about these guys. Head on over to PugetSystems.com and check it out. Now, if you love this show and you're excited about this show and you're like, Mike, how are you going to keep this show going without any money? I don't know. <laughs> you can support us. If you haven't done so already, by signing up for a free trial at Audible, I think it's audibletrial.com backslash love of the process. The link is in the description of the episode, okay? Click on that link, sign up for a free trial, um, and then you'll get a free audiobook, 30 days for free access. They do a bunch of other really great stuff at Audible. They do audio programs. They have like a, a really great a series for Alien that's up there that's really good. Um, and it's the only way I read books these days because I just don't have the time to sit down and read a book. I'm usually listening to these books as I do something else or listening to these books as I go to sleep. Um, I've been able to get through novels again because of Audible. So if you guys are in the same boat, if you're looking to fill your time 
with some knowledge and some great content. Sign up for the 30-day free trial at Audible. And after 30 days, if like you're not getting your unemployment checks anymore, if you're not making any cash and like, I can't afford this right now, don't feel bad about having to cancel because we still get paid. I know you're going to stick around because uh, you're going to love it, but don't feel bad about it. It's the best way to get us cash for the show because Audible pays us for everybody that signs up. Best way to get us cash without costing you a dime. Okay? Can't say that enough. So click the link that is in our description. Let's get back into it with Mike. What was the what was the biggest thing you learnt on twelve making twelve kilometers, or what was the sort of most indelible experience of of making that film? Like physically doing it, like on set. Yeah, or in any part, in any part of the process from start to finish. I think that there, prior to twelve km for me, I you know I was doing a lot of music videos, I was doing commercials and stuff, and you really when you're doing that stuff, you're pretty much for hire. So like you're just trying to impress you know, the creative directors or whoever you're working for. And then at the back end of it, you really don't get that much appreciation. You know, there's a hundred people in front of you that are going to get the appreciation before you do. So when I did 12 cam, it was very liberating for me because I essentially create, I created this nightmare for myself. I decided that I was going to do that movie in a different language, a language I didn't speak. I decided that I was going to uh, take full financial responsibility and make this thing. And uh, it was liberating for me to be on set and realize that I could rely on these amazing people that I had met over the years, these amazing relationships and bonds that I had formed, not just with the with the film crew, but also, for instance, the guy that I got the location from and, and I shot in this space, um, he was a friend of my uncle's and I had done another short film, that Punisher film that got canceled on me years prior with him and and so when i was like hey i gotta do this movie about russians drilling in the, <laughs> you know a drill site in like the 1980s i'm like where the fuck am i gonna shoot it you know and uh, i had talked to him and he was such a wonderful individual that he let me use his warehouse for a month for free so i had that entire space for a month with no cost um and i was able to get my crews that at the time we're working on like they were the art team on surrogates which was that bruce willis movie mm -hmm. they were doing that during the day for 12 hours and then they would go do another six hours at night on my build for you know like a month mm -hmm. and just that appreciation for the team and then that understanding that these people really like to circle around a good idea and they really like to circle around a great experience and then I started to realize that like putting together a movie as a filmmaker is kind of like putting on a barbecue, believe it or not. And so you're really just trying to design a really great experience for everybody involved. And if you do so, they're going to go to the edge of the earth with you. You're going to learn a hell of a lot from these people. Um, and so I think the thing that I stepped out of after doing 12 cam was the confidence that I could inspire 
uh, a crew that I could inspire a cast and crew to really go to the edge of the earth with me um, and and be smiling the whole time. You know what I mean? I, I, I love that about that movie, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I... I think that, uh, you know, but obviously the, you know, the synergy you had with your cast and crew, um, you know, is, is really, you can really feel that in the film, in the, the performances, the lighting, just the, the, frankly, the, the, the originality, you know, and that was obviously something that struck me so much when I, you know, when I was first introduced to your film and uh, it doesn't surprise me uh, that you made that, if that makes sense, it, 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 it really doesn't. And and I and I, I say that in the spirit intended. You know, I I wasn't sort of trying to, <laughs> I wasn't trying to say it wouldn't surprise me. Mike Patchy would make a very <laughs> movie about you know drill holes in Russia and in Siberia. But um, I think what I meant was by that was uh, I could feel that a lot of people had come together. Uh, on that film to do something you know that really was more than the sum of its parts yeah and i think that you know the lesson that i learned from that which i then took on when i did the uh the second proof of concept which was who's there which was the best set that i've ever run it really just became this safe place for creativity this safe place for um for camaraderie and friendship uh, and if you can build the space like that as a leader, as a, as a filmmaker, then you'll get results that surprise people. And I remember when we took 12 cam around to different places, there was a guessing game on our budget for that, where they're just like, mm-hmm. how much money did you guys spend on this and what's going on? And, mm-hmm. and, uh, it, I never wanted to tell it what it was because the value of the time and the energy that was put into it by all these people that really believed in the movie and really believed in that project uh, was priceless. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. absolutely, uh, really fascinating stuff. And for, and you know, I should probably say for those listening, because I've never really talked about what we're doing with 12 cam and I've never really talked about that stuff. Um, Mike and I met for that movie. That's how we met. I met Mike because you're, you're now working. How long have you been working at uh, Scott Free now, Mike? Uh, I've been at Scott Free for seven years, just over seven years. Wow, dude! What a what a cool place, by the way. <laughs> what a great. I, no, I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs> but I I remember, and I've I've I don't think you and I have talked about this, but uh, Will and I joke about this. Will Simmons, who wrote the uh, feature version of Twelve KM, we joke about this. Uh, when I came out to move the movie around and pitch the movie around to different places we ended up doing you know your management your agent send you on like the tour and you go around and you you, you do all that stuff and i remember because i was still in boston at the time and they said hey look can you stay out here for 10 days and we're gonna ship you around and you're gonna meet with all these different people and i didn't get the call about scott free until like day five in and so you guys were like our last stop and I remember saying to Will, I go, I don't give a fuck. I'm like, I don't care if we make this movie with them or not. I just want to go in there and make a great impression because everything that you guys cut that comes out of Scott Free just blows my mind. And um, I remember our meeting going really well with you guys. And uh, really, you and I connecting pretty hard because we, we talked about my head injury and you talked about your you talked about an accident that you were in and we really connected on that. And I walked out of that meeting going, man, these guys are so fucking great. I I want them on my team. I want to be in the trenches with these cats. And uh, we were just holding our breath until you guys called us. (laughs) If that makes any sense. Yeah, no, we had to, 
you know, well, I think a lot of it as well is about, you know, do you, you know, there's, there has to be a sort of a commonality, you know, or, or a, a common purpose, you know, and a common, you know, sort of, uh, there needs to be a camaraderie, you know, you have, you have to, if you're going to spend a lot of time with somebody and you really do on films, I mean, it's a year and a half of your life. Usually when you make a film from yeah. start to finish, I mean, God knows I've had ones that have been a hell of a lot longer than that tragically, but, uh, <laughs> you know, there are, uh, you really want to think are these, the are these people, people I'm really going to, not, not just enjoy spending time with it's not always about enjoying you know work is tough and it's hard and you get stressed and you know th you have to adapt to that and you know but it, it's about are these decent people you know yeah. because when things get tough and you're in the trenches and you look around are these are the people that are going to step up and are you going to solve the problems with you know and yeah. it's very very easy to turn the other way bury your head in the sand hide behind someone else pass the buck and i've been there i've seen it i you know earlier on in my career when you know i didn't have necessarily the the experience um that i do now you know it, it, those things can happen and it's it's human nature sometimes to take the the you know the easy path you know or the path of least resistance but i think when you, you know filmmaking is is a large collaborative high wire act and you know <laughs> the the, the tightrope is a tightrope walk you know and you want to sort of think you know when the shit goes down you know i'm see i'm being very respectful for your podcast uh, fans and followers um, <laughs> you don't need to be with these guys <laughs> okay, uh, so when it all blows up um who, who you know who's going to pick up the phone who's going to say you know mike yes all right we'll step up we'll do this and i think i really felt that uh, with you and and again this isn't suddenly turning into some kind of you know sycophantic obsequious moment but it's it's <laughs> i i felt that with you and will like you guys are problem solvers and that is such a huge part of filmmaking like if you want to be in film unless you're a writer and you have to sort of solve your own problems a lot of the time um this is such a it is a team sport mm -hmm. you've got to find collaborators that you believe in and trust in and who aren't going to let you down and who aren't going to walk away. And that takes courage. And I think definitely when we met, I was like, you know, I, I remember saying to my team, you know, Mike Petchy and Will Simmons, these guys will hustle. They're solution driven. Um, they've got vision. And I could see us working with these guys, you know, like they, they've got the, the characteristics to succeed, you know. And I think that, you know, a, approach and enthusiasm and you know that kind of attitude goes such a long way well i appreciate that man for for me it like it just took years thankfully i had those years of experience doing music videos and doing that stuff um where you just sort of learn and you get i've talked about it on the show a bunch like when you're younger and you're you have less experience you're constantly trying to uh, inflate your ego. You're constantly trying to uh, project confidence because you just don't have the experience. And so mm -hmm. I think a lot of times the uh, insecurity comes from that. And then a, a lot of different filmmakers will hide their insecurity with with ego and with, with quote unquote vision, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, I learned pretty early on um, from being a diva on one of my shoots at how terrible it was and how it affected everybody on the team and 
And after that, I just vowed, I'm like, look, this isn't about me. This is about creating something and creating an experience together. And then I started to release a lot of that stress I'd put on myself where it's like, I need to have all the fucking answers. I need to be the one that fixes all the problems. I need to be the one that does all this and realize that there's a power to casting, not only your talent, but casting your team, your crew and these people around you that have their own life experiences that will come in handy when you're confronting these specific things. And, and to have that confidence as a director to, to turn to your team or turn to your producer and go, I don't know how to do this. And, and then understand that you're in a safe place that you're allowed to say that. And then that team steps up and says, hey, well, in my prior experience, I've done this. And in my prior experience, I've done that. And then it's just sort of my job at that point to be a tastemaker where I'm like, well, why don't we take a little bit of that and take a little bit of this and take a little bit of that and let's see what that formula does and see how that works. Uh, and I think once I realized that as a director, it just became a lot, my anxiety levels went down a lot. And then... Uh, the work, quality work went up a lot. So like there was this really smart sort of exchange of stuff for me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I, th I, that all makes complete sense. And I, you know, as always, I think you very eloquently hit on a lot of good points. And that is, you know, a big part of the job is surrounding yourself with people that are smarter and better than you are, you know? <laughs> yeah. and, I, and, I, and I think about this every time I, I produce a film, you know, and, and oftentimes I go back to, you know the people that i've i've worked with before just because they've been terrific or if they're not available they'll recommend me somebody but you know put put people on your film that are better than you because mm -hmm. guess what you will learn a hell of a lot and you will be able to take that knowledge and give it to somebody else and be that person to somebody else and i think that's so important and you know i what I, I was lucky enough to get you know, work with John Matheson, you know, on American Woman, mm -hmm. who's one of the great, you know, one of the great cinematographers. And, you know, similarly with, you know, Chung Hoon Chung uh, on Earthquake Bird and watching these gentlemen work uh, was, you know, was, was really just, you know, I, I don't want to sound, you know, cliche, but it was, it was inspirational because, I think what, what you see beyond the technical craft, you see people that are great at inspiring and managing others are getting the best out of other people. Yeah. And again, not, not every film is, is poetry. I mean, you know, there are always problems and issues and, and things, but what I definitely, uh, what I definitely think is who, who can we bring that will be the best for us and will push other people um, and you know, we will, we, we want to work with the, with the, with the top people, you know, it's easy to get people that aren't, that are pretty mediocre and not really up to the job. It's very hard to get people that are truly exceptional and the ones that are exceptional are, you know, you're, you're lucky to have them. They're often busy, but my goodness, can they bring out the best in everybody, you know? So that's, mm -hmm. that's my first rule of thumb is, is, you know, try and get, people in and around you that will, you know, really elevate, you know, a, a high tide, you know, raises all ships, doesn't it? <laughs> totally. It's a hundred percent true. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you know, and, and that being said, let's, let's swap topics a little bit um, because uh, I, I did watch uh, Earthquake Bird and that movie's gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. And then uh, because you and I have talked a bunch, I know that you have such a love for uh, Tokyo in Japan 
Um, I just remember watching, seeing a lot of those locations and being envious that I wasn't there hanging out with you guys because it seemed like such a really, was that a fun shoot for you guys? Was that a, was that a cool shoot or was it stressful? It was great. It was a great shoot. Um, and I, I mean, there, there were difficult moments in it, but overall it was a great shoot. And yes, I, I'm a big, uh, a huge Japan file. Um, I love <laughs> Um, this is this is not uh, a secret to people that know me, um, but I am a huge Japan file, and I have been for some time. And you know, and that's I love Japanese literature, architecture. I mean, we won't get started on food, uh, and also you know, just you know, Japanese film. As I I watched it growing up, I studied some of it in film school, so I'd always wanted to do a film that. I suppose was not necessarily about Japan because Earthquake Birds is a sort of about Japan, but it's it's one part of the film. But that just had a Japanese element and influence to it. And I think the really interesting thing with that film was that you know Wash Westmoreland, the the writer director, he had lived in Japan uh, in the in the late eighties actually when the story when the book and the story are set. Uh, he lived in Fukuoka. And I remember reading the book and I'd met Wash after he'd made this love, beautiful film called Still Alice, obviously, that where Julianne Moore won the Oscar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, you know, I'd met him and his then, you know, partner, Richard Gladser, uh, who, you know, who sadly has, has, has left us, um, you know, since. And I met them and, and said, you know, gosh, I'd love to work with you guys on something. And I, I vividly remember Wash telling me then he, you know, he'd lived in Japan and, and we sort of had a conversation about that. And then some, you know, two, three years went by, but we kept in touch. And then I came across Susanna Jones's novel, thanks to my, my dear friend in Tokyo, Georgina Pope, um, who run, who's a producer and, and runs 21st City there. Mm-hmm. And she said to me, check out this book. I think there's something really special here. And I did. And I called Wash immediately and I said, you got to come into the office. And he said, well, this doesn't sound good. And I said, no, 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 it's very good. Uh, it's, uh, uh, I said, I, I just want to pitch you something in person because I'm so excited about it and I'm going to like burst if I have to do this on the phone. And he was like, wow, okay. So we met the next day and I pitched him the book. I literally gave him a hard copy of the book and I said, read it, come back to me. And if you don't want to do it, I'm, I'm totally fine. And I guess I'm a little crazy, but I think you're going to love it. And a week later, he called me and goes, I'm in. I'm going to write. I love it. I'm going to write it. I'm going to direct it. And we are going to make a really unusual film that is in, in, in many ways influenced by, he said, I want to kind of make a film that's Eastern in its style, Eastern in its tone. Yeah. Eastern yeah, yeah, yeah. in its pacing. And that's, that was what we, we tried to do with that film. It's a sort of a enigmatic you know it's an enigmatic thriller but really it's 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 the mis- it's a mystery of self as much as it is a mystery of the plot you know yeah, and i totally. mean what happened to lily bridges is one part of it but you know who is lucy fly is the other part of it you know and i think sort of looking at, at those you know sort of the, the the duality there the parallel tracks of that film i always found very very you know very interesting and i also love the fact that you know, Lucy Fly had played by, you know, the mesmerizing Alicia Vikander mm-hmm. um, had run away from something and she had obviously gone run away from something traumatic and she had reinvented herself through language and sort of, you know, Japan is such a hugely, profoundly different 
culture than ours and you know down to every part of it basically and the fact that the language is so different was so interesting to me you know that and so we made a bilingual film and thankfully that and that was always our intent we never wanted to just kind of go and make a you know whatever a, a japanese thriller we were like let's make a bilingual film where you place two western characters in japan in the 80s and i went to my friends at netflix and said you're gonna think i'm probably a little bit unusual here but i got a kind of an amazing movie i want to i want to do with you guys and i and i pitched it with watch and thankfully they you know they stepped up and we we made it but uh again these you know every film has its own journey and you know would netflix make that film now i don't know you know their their business model has has changed but uh i'm really glad we made it and and it's it's while there are shortcomings in the film I think what it does uh, really well is create a kind of mood and tone and atmosphere of, of, it does. of instability. And like you're never on stable footing in that film, whether it's visually, whether it's through language, whether it's through, you know, certain mysterious things that happen. And perhaps some of them are a little opaque, you know, fr- you know rather like the novel. But I do, I do sort of love a lot about that film and sort of it's, it sort of remains you know, but still a bit of a mystery to me, actually, I suppose the film, you know, and, and I, and I say that actually with, with, you know, probably some fondness. Well, that's good though. I mean, it's, movies are supposed to make it, well, not all movies, but a lot of really great films are supposed to, you're supposed to be thinking about it continuously. And if the filmmakers are still thinking about it, that's really great. And I agree with you. The tone of that movie is f- fucking fantastic. And I've got such an obsession for Tokyo and uh, Japan as well. And I, I, I don't know if you've done the same, but over quarantine, I, you know, got myself a subscription to uh, the Criterion channel. So I've just mm. been tearing through Criterions. Um, and I've been deep, deep, deep into the Tokyo Noir mm. uh, uh, genre. And I fucking love it. And I can, I continuously am uh, just so excited by the differences in our cultures and seeing that on screen because there's a sense of discovery being an American watching that stuff where you're like, I don't quite understand what's going on. And so I find myself three times as involved with it. And then one of the things that I really learned uh, once again from 12KM and doing a, an entire film in a language that I didn't speak, um, it became mm-hmm. a exercise in, in body language mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and, you know, blocking and posturing. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's fascinating about Uh, Japanese culture is that a lot of the body language is different than it would be here or would be in Russian. And and so uh, I've watched these like old noir movies, these old gangster movies uh, from Japan, and I'm just completely fucking infatuated with them, man. They're so cool, you know? Oh, they are. Yeah, no, they, they really are. And, and, and again, it's a different style of filmmaking, you know, because it's a different, you know, we're so used to sort of throwing our, you know, Western, you know, sort of tropes and, and disposition, you know, predispositions and personalities on, you know, on, on the things we do. But when you approach, you know, cinema from, and, and life really, and, you know, everything and art in a, in a, in a different way, I mean, not, not, you know, it'd be, it would be silly to say, you know, Japanese film is, has no, you know, nothing in common with Western film. Of course it does, but, you know, in terms of, you know, 
what the, their greats were doing, you know, Kurosawa or Ozu, you know, the style of filmmaking, when you look at films like Tokyo Story or Late Spring or yes. An Autumn Afternoon or, you know, whatever it is from, you know, from Ozu, who's been a huge influence on my, you know, my life and, and career. You just, as you said, like, you, you appreciate something totally different about film and like space and, you know, how so much of Ozu's work, you know, the camera was often on the ground, you know, because people sit on the ground to eat in, you know, yeah. they sit on the floor to eat in 1950s post-war Japan, you know, you know, the way, you know, the way people were, were men and how different men and women were shot with the sort of, you know, the em empty space that exists a lot of the time when you have more than, you know, one person uh, on, on, on screen and sort of the way children are in his movies, you know, children are depicted in his movies. And it's so interesting to me to sort of look at that. And then again, not that we tried to replicate any of that in Earthquake, but we were sort of trying to find our balance between Eastern and Western. And mm -hmm. you know, uh, Chung Hoon Chung, the great Korean cinematographer, helped us with that. And funny enough, his wife is Japanese. So we sort of had a, a lot of, uh, it was very interesting to have a Korean DP on a sort of bilingual English <laughs> you know, Japanese movie because he also brought, you know, his influence, you know, as a, as a, as a, uh, a Korean filmmaker and a, you know a Korean cinematographer. So um, it's lovely when you get a lot of uh, a confluence of a lot of things, and you try and you know again, Earthquake Bird. I'm not saying it's a perfect movie, but we the intentions surrounding that film uh, was to do something that was a bit, a bit you know a bit different and brought together a lot of different countries and cultures and filmmaking ideas. You can tell when you watch it for sure, Mike. You can totally tell. And like that, I actually celebrate movies that are more tonal these days than than plot driven, anyways. Because I feel like there's such a focus on 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 plot and structure and the same structure and the same plot in all these films. And half the time, you start a movie and you go, "I know exactly what's going to fucking happen. I know where this is going to go." Yep. And so there hasn't been this focus on tone. And so when you find, like, I I think the most recent movie I saw. I think it was Possessor. I think it was Cronenberg's son's movie mm. that had this fucking tone to it. And I was like, man, I know that this is like Inception. I know mm -hmm. plot-wise that this is something I've seen before, but the tone is so good. Um, and, you know, you working at Ridley's company, I mean, talk about the king of tone. Mm. Uh, I remember going in there and waiting for you guys and there's posters on the wall. And I remember being the most excited about Black Rain's poster. I fucking mm. love that movie. Weren't you a fan? Are you a fan of Black Rain? Oh, huge. I have a, I actually, in my office, which I haven't been into for a while, of course, because of, uh, of, our, of the pandemic, I actually, Ridley signed for me. I'll tell you a funny story. Oh, actually, when, <laughs> and, and you may, your, 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 uh, your, your listeners will like this. So when we were shooting Earthquake Bird, um, you'll remember very early on in the film, um, Lucy Fly, played by Alicia, is translating um, a movie. The movie she is translating into Japanese from the English is Black Rain. Oh. And if you remember this, it's this it's the early scene in the film where Michael Douglas and Kate Capshaw are in the bar. Yes. Suspicious something, you know, something's going on. Um, and the movie she's translating is Black Rain, and Ridley got a real kick out of that um as well because obviously you know black rain was a you know it is and you know uh was and is an iconic film 
And then the production designer of the film, a really, really wonderful fellow, Yohei Taneda, um, and who's obviously worked with Tarantino uh, several times as his production designer, and we were very lucky to get him on Earthquake Bird. Yohei found the original um, Japanese... Uh, it was it was a small booklet that was actually used for translation purposes and positioning purposes when the film was released in Japan. And it was a small booklet that was sort of small poster size. And he found several from, God, goodness knows where, some some store he told me. We dug them out, you know, dug them out of somewhere. And um, they were actually featured. They're not on camera, but they were in, 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 uh, one of the drawers um, that uh, Lucy Fly is na- that, that's part of her desk, mm-hmm. and so when we shot the scene, Yohei pulled out these booklets for me, and he said, "Look what I found." He said, "These are the originals from 1989 that were used in Japan for translation and positioning. I, f- I found them from Toho or wherever it was." So and cool. I said to him, "Man," he said, "I think there are only about ten of these left in the world." So I he gave me one, and I had Ridley sign it, and it literally <laughs> says. Black Rain in, you know, it says Black Rain in Japanese. It's the great iconic picture of Michael Douglas and Ridley signed it for me and it's uh, sitting in my office, my empty office. I am absolutely jealous. (laughs) That is so cool, man. (laughs) Yeah, like that movie, I mean, those are the early days of Ridley and the, the days that really sort of inspire my lighting and my cinematography stuff. I'm, I'm sure you can see that. Uh, like the the early Ridley Scott stuff. Yep. A- and um, Black Rain was such a strange movie because I had no idea what it was about. And I was like, Michael Douglas is a badass in this? And he ended up being really amazing. And and Andy Garcia. And it that movie affected me in such a huge level, um, more so than a lot of his other films. And I'm surprised that that movie doesn't get as much credit as, as it deserves. Cause I, I thought it was such a great fish out of water tale. And sure. A lot of the tones in it, or a lot of the, the story stuff in it is a little dated, could be updated, but I love that fucking movie, man. I think that movie is really great. Oh, it's, 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 you know, like so many of his films, you know, they're, and whether they're ones that, you know, are, you know, quote unquote, sort of immediately, successful and revered or maybe slightly less so or underappreciated. I mean, you just, I find myself going back to, you know, Ridley's films time and time again, you know, for so many things. And, you know, he's obviously, uh, you know, a, a truly a master of the craft. I mean, that, you know, that much is an axiomatic truth, but I think, uh, uh, more than anything, they're so rich. You know, you you can go back to films like Black Hawk Down and GI mm-hmm, Jane, and, mm-hmm. and you know, Matchstick Men, and and you know, a, a, a real favorite of mine, A Good Year. You know, and yeah. really, you know, you, you they're, they're films that are just so valuable because they exist on so many levels, and obviously the you know the the technical uh, craftsmanship is is outstanding, and he's known for that, but. So are his performances and his attention to, you know, every part of the process is is just magnificent. And I I find his, you know, it, it's so interesting to see somebody who's, you know, made Thelma and Louise and who's made GI <laughs> yeah. Jane, but's also made Alien and 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 Blade Runner and The Martian, and just how his career has been completely sort of 
uh, non, you know, it, he, he's, he's, he's constantly reinvented himself as a great artist, you know, between genres. And I think that is inspiring, not just for those of us who are lucky enough to sort of work with him and be in his, you know, run his company and be in his world, but also so many, you know, so many young directors I talk to, they say, you know, they'll, they'll say to me some, some of the most surprising things, you know, I talked to somebody not too long ago who told me he thinks the counselor is one of the most important films of the last, you know, 25 years and right. here, here are the reasons why. And he said, it's, you know, this is a meditation on, on Sartre and Kierkegaard. And he explained to me for ages, you know, all about the philosophy <laughs> of the film and it was about nihilism and the sort of the destruction of the self. And I mean, I was, you know, I, I, my mind was blown and he, he spent half an hour telling me this. And so, you know, again, coming back to what you said about black rain, I think Ridley, you know, obviously I'm lucky enough to, to work very closely with him, but he's, uh, you know, not just uh, uh, an extraordinary filmmaker who's had this remarkable career and will go down as one of the greats ever, but he's a lovely, kind, generous uh, man. And with his work ethic is, as you can imagine, absolutely extraordinary. Um, he's, he's, never... he's awe-inspiring as far as his work ethic goes. I mean, come on, dude. Like he always, it always seems like Ridley's got three movies in the pipe. And to be able to to do that stuff and run the companies that he does and like and, and at his age to still be running that strong it, it's he's on like intimidating you know and the 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 idea that my little movie that I made in Boston was in his offices really fucking blew my mind because the the guy is the top of the line for American cinema in my mind I think that just like for every reason you said. For, like every genre that he's ever touched uh ends up becoming like this beautiful tone driven piece and fuck man it, it's like i said it still blows my mind that 12 cam was even in that space <laughs> he well he, he's a he's a filmmaker that you know he's a great artist that works on big canvases you know yeah. and and i think his films always have a huge amount of sort of um artistic sort of purpose and intent and beauty um and they're about something they're substantive but he he somehow manages to sort of you know paint these characters and these worlds on enormous canvases that speak to people and i mean you, you know gladiators one of the most emotional films you know you'll ever see and yeah. yeah it's the it's the most extraordinary spectacle of of, of rome and this time and you know and the being in the stadiums and you feel every every moment you know russell crowe moves around and thinks it might be his last moment and you you know you're in awe as he throws the sword and it smashes on the table next to you know the, mm -hmm. the, the spectators <laughs> and you know and he, he he's you know but i think some people are and as I've learned with Ridley over the last seven or eight years, he, he demands a lot and he expects a lot, but he also keeps himself to those high standards, you know, the, and, he, and he has done his whole career, you know. And so when you have somebody like that, when you're working for a director who runs your company rather than a corporate, you know, entity or a conglomerate or a checkbook or whatever it is, there's something about that that every day, you know, I wake up and I, I never take it for granted. I'm like, you know, I am, you know, what, what an amazing journey to take that's taken me to work with you know truly one of the greats and and i remember watching blade runner with my dad you know <laughs> when i was 13 years old and you know we were in, in the suburbs of london and 
we switched on the, the TV one night and my dad said to me, you know, I want to show you a really good film. And I said, oh yeah, what's it called? He said, it's Blade Runner. He said, it's by this English director, Ridley Scott. He said, he's from the north of England and he said, he's a brilliant visionary. Um, <laughs> I think it's probably about, I was probably, you know, this was in the, I think probably early nineties or, you know, mid, mid nineties. And, you know, I, my film love was emerging, but certainly, you know, wasn't what it was. And, I just remember watching this film with my dad and just being absolutely mesmerized by the music and the tone and yeah. the lights and the performance and that scene where, you know, they're there in the piano, you know, she's playing the piano and, you know, they have that incredible moment and just what it all means. And then to, to sort of come back around and then, you know, the, the, the strangeness of life, you know, that it, it sort of comes back around and I ended up working for him. I still, you know, remember the day I, I told my father that, you know, and I said, I've got a new job. And he said, and I said, you're not going to believe this. I said, I'm going to work for Ridley Scott. And he was like, what? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I, I said, and he said, what, the Ridley Scott? And I said, yes, dad, there's only one Ridley Scott. <laughs> um, and he, uh, and yeah, he, you know, it's so, it's, it's funny where life takes you and, you know, what you end up doing. And, um, but it's truly, you know, as I, you and I have talked about, it's a blessing to work in arts. It's a blessing mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, to work, um, you know, doing any artistic endeavor and make a living from it. And, you know, I only hope that, uh, um, you know, I, I, I wish everybody was as, as generous and kind and humble and frankly, brilliant as, as Ridley, but they, they often aren't. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, he, he's, he's obviously one of a kind. Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool, man. Like I said, it, it just, being in that space and the short amount of time that I was in the offices with, with you guys, like you just feel it and you feel that, that sense of quality right when you walk into the office, you just know that this is elevated work and what you're walking into is, is Ridley's world. And, 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 you know, I can only hope to, I, I can, I can never try to be like Ridley, but I can only hope to have a fraction of his career. I think that, uh, just the art alone. And like we, you were saying about Blade Runner and that experience that you had with it. I, I was just doing another podcast yesterday and we talked for quite some time about Blade Runner. Mm. And uh, every podcast that I'm a part of or anytime I talk to fans on this show, uh, Blade Runner is such an important uh, chapter in the, in, in the book of cinema for folks. And uh, I think one of the things that I love so much about that movie is that I'm more concerned these days uh, about being immersed in that world. And so when I watch Harrison Ford wait to sit down and have noodles, I have to pause the movie and go make myself noodles. <laughs> like there's <laughs> there's this point I'm where like of you. Yeah. So I have to like I have to be there. And and if if there was some weird cut that was put out, and I found this thing uh years ago when I was having trouble sleeping, I was dealing with insomnia. Um I found this uh sound effect album that was kicking around, which was essentially just loops of the different environments from Blade Runner. And so it was all the sound effects of the street and the rain and all that stuff. And and I would go to sleep to it every night and just imagine that I was there waiting in line with Harrison Ford. And that's <laughs> that's what I love about that film is that, that I pop it in these days, not necessarily, it's a great story and I, and I love the noir that it is, but for me, it's more so about like, hey, I'm gonna go visit the world of Blade Runner again. Mm. How's your origami? <laughs> Not as good. <laughs> um, you know, we got to get you to Japan for some lessons. Oh, please, dude, please. Ah, but no, you make a great point, and I, 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 and I also think you know as well. 
Um, obviously, you know, Ridley's late brother, you know, the inimitable you know, Tony Scott, yeah. who, you know, I, I started at the company, you know, soon after, you know, sadly, Tony's, Tony's passing. And um, I never got to meet him. But, you know, obviously, his, uh, his presence and filmography and personality is still part of our, our company. And, you know, when you think of, you know, how different you know the brothers are in terms of their their filmography but also you know what an extraordinary artist tony was you know whether it was man on fire or amazing you know, romance or top gun or days of thunder or unstoppable or crimson tide you know tony was to me you know enemy of the state i mean we could go on right you know the hunger but i think tony was also somebody that i think brought you know, he, he knew what popular culture was and he knew how to entertain and he knew how to get extraordinary performances from, you know, frankly, you know, actors that were probably, um, you know, more stars than actors sometimes. And, you know, Tony was just so good at so many things as well. So I, I have to say I'm also, you know, I'm also inspired by, um you know, so much of Tony's work and obviously, you know, he left us too soon. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, uh, it, it's remarkable to sort of also live, you know, work and, and sort of live in that, you know, kind of, you know, legacy as well as obviously, uh, in addition to, you know, Ridley's current, you know, current great work. Yeah. Tony Scott, I miss him so much as far as his films are concerned. Um, because he had, so many influential movies, whether you're talking about Top Gun or you're talking about True Romance or you're even talking about The Last Boy Scout, which went through all sorts of shit to get that made. Like his his tone and his sense of style was amazing as well. And I've heard, because I'm good friends with Zach Merck, who's a director uh, who started uh, as Tony's, uh, uh, one of his interns. And he's had stories about how caring and how wonderful he was as an individual and how he really was a great mentor and he'd bring people in and, and teach them things. And um, I, I'd love to hear that stuff, especially from someone that's at the top of their game. You know, like an individual who's on an aircraft carrier, you know, trying to convince them to turn it around for Top Gun. You know what I mean? And to, and to be that guy that doesn't get obsessed or absorbed in that ego as like the big Hollywood director and will still mentor people and still and still teach folks um he's an inspiration and was like an amazing filmmaker you know yeah no exactly you know the the the, the work speaks for itself it lives on doesn't it and again you know the um it's it's inspiring for us as his team and producers to you know to be to be around that and um you know it's uh uh yeah as somebody once said to me if you can if you can make one movie that's as good as, you know, if you can make one movie like uh, Tony or Ridley, you've done well, right? Yeah. yeah, no. And dude, you know, to get, cause you know, we should probably wrap this up soon to, you know, bring it back to your films. Your films have been fantastic and the sense of quality and uh, the guidance that is completely apparent when you watch these movies, because you see it on the different projects that you've, you've done. Um, you see it, dude, you see your work. And, uh, you know, like I said, I just watched uh, Our Friend and that movie destroyed me. And, you know, surprisingly, the the part of that film, and I'm not going to give anything away. You guys should see it. It's available on streaming right now. Um, was when uh, uh, Cherry Jones shows up. Mm. And, and she 
destroys me. She destroyed me in signs and the whole bit in signs where, you know, mm -hmm. Mel's wife is trapped on the tree and that whole bit. And in this film, when she comes in, she just has this presence and this motherly presence that um, when she looks at you and she's got one of those faces that you want in a close up and she just looks at you with those sad eyes. And she, all she has to do is just like sort of, you know, tick her head to the side slightly and look at you. Um, it just fucking melted me. And, and and the movie is intense and there's so many things to really sort of get into your heart and break it with that film. But it was when she showed up and then I was like, oh, I can't I can't have my tears. And I'm like, get out of here, Gina. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm not crying in here, but it was it was when she came on screen that really fucking destroyed me. I'm proud of you for being vulnerable, Mike. Um, <laughs> really proud of you. Thanks, dude. Um, yeah, she, she comes in. She comes in at the right time in the film, you know, and she gives the film a new, you know, that sort of, you know, part of the third act, you know, that sort of a real, you know, oddly, you know, energy, you know, and I think she, you feel like she's a sort of a really safe pair of reassuring hands, you know, she's an arm around your shoulder as a viewer at that moment in the in in the film, and I think we wanted. Uh, we wanted the experience to feel like that because, you know, obviously you, you know, we've been going through this um, journey with, you know, with the deterioration of, of Nicole's health and, and, you know, obviously the story is we structured it in a specific way where, you know, we sort of flash forward and flash back and we did that for very specific reasons. But I think at that point in the film, when sort of past catches up to present, um, you know, Cherry, yeah she's a she's a she's a real sort of force of nature and she she helps us as viewers get through to the end of the film in yeah. a way that i think she helps sort of nicole through the end of her life so i think we tried to sort of parallel that and um you know it's uh uh it's you know it's it's a film that i uh that really was personal to me in in, in a lot of ways and uh it was uh, not the easiest film to make, but it was very, very, it was an important film for me to make. And I, I got very close with Matt Teague, um, the, the author of the, the article, obviously, and it was mm -hmm. his, his life story. And we bonded, you know, we had a lot of producers that wanted that film and we really bonded over loss and grief. And, but we also bonded over friendship, you know, and what it means to be a friend and, you know, who are your real friends? Who are the people that are going to stick around? Mm -hmm. You know, that film is about that. It's about, when, when it gets tough, who, who, who shows up for you and who's there? And, you know, the fact that Dane, you know, was such, this extraordinary person who really sacrificed his own life in many ways to help Matt, but also deeper than that, that again, rather like Alicia in Earthquake Bird, Dane was running from something and, yeah. you know, it takes a certain type of person to just be able to drop everything and, and do that. So there's a beautiful, uh, and I think difficult complexity under the surface of selflessness. And that was something that was very interesting to me to explore. And also, you know, the, the relationship between men, you know, there aren't mm -hmm. a lot of films about men being vulnerable and men and male friendships where men can really talk to each other about like life and death and suffering and our insecurities and our worries and our, um, you know, and all the things that I think we, you know, we, we have to deal with in life. And that, that really spoke to me. And uh, Matt was very, very gracious with his, his time. And he was so generous in his collab, you know, in his uh, collaboration with us, obviously, you know, a beautiful screenplay from Brad Inglesby and, and you know, directed 
uh, I think with such grace and, and elegance and dignity by, you know, my, my dear friend, you know, Gabriella Carpathwaite, uh, who's a wonderful director. Yeah. And again, you know, these films aren't easy to make. When I went out and pitched this film, a lot of people were like, wait, a cancer movie? Like, see you, buddy. You know, we love you, Pruss, <laughs> but this ain't the one. And right. it takes, also it takes somebody like Black Bear, who, you know, our, our, our friends there, um, Teddy and, and Mike and Ben, to step up and see this and see what, you know, and, and, and you, you're always betting on a vision at some point, you know, and that that's, you know, that's what you have to do. You have to believe in what you're doing and somebody's going to have to take a, you know, a little bit of a, uh, a chance on you and, and on your vision. There's never a safe bet in film, whether it's our friend or whether it's, you know, Transformers, you know, 10 or whatever it is. Like, you know, <laughs> right. there, there's never a safe bet. You think there is, but there never is. You never know what's going to strike a chord with an audience. I mean, you can have 55,000 accountants putting, you know, numbers in spreadsheets and tell you this will work in this territory and here's what audiences want. And of course, there's a, some, there's a science to it to a point. But, you know, it, it's, it's never just that. You know, movies, are, again, are about, they're, they're about so many things and, the, and so many different things coming together. You know, the, the, yeah. or, the orchestra has to play, you know, together under a great conductor. And that's always an analogy I use for film. And, you know, not every time it works perfectly, but you still hope the experience will, will be something and, uh, uh, you know, will be something useful and beneficial. Um, mm-hmm. And... I think, you know, to your point about Scott Free, you know, as a company, one of the reasons I'm at Scott Free is to work with young filmmakers, new filmmakers, and support different types of films and artistry than typically and historically that we've done before. And that's a really important thing to uh, to all of us at Scott Free and no more so than Ridley. And I frankly, and I think honestly, one of the reasons I, 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 I took the job and got the job because I said to him, I don't just want to do what we've done before. I think we should really look at ways to make films. And this was seven years ago. I said, independently financed films, films that are going to stream. We need to work with different partners in different ways. And let's work with, you know, there's a generation of great voices that we can support and we can advocate for. And I want to continue that, you know, and, and to continue hopefully, you know, for the company to find the next greats, you know, that follow in the footsteps of, of, of Tony and Ridley, you know, yeah, totally. that's, that's something that's really important. So we'll make those films, you know, we'll make, you know, our friend was an under $10 million film, you know, and that was, uh, you, not not something we do that often, but um, it's a film that we're all really proud of. You know, equals that I did with Kristen Stewart and and Guy Pearce and uh, uh, Nicholas Holt. That was the first independently financed film in Scott Free's history. Mm-hmm. And that was the first film I made for Ridley, and he. Re- I think he at that point he realized. You know, we had many discussions about it, and with all his top team at the company, we can do really cool and interesting work in non traditional ways. And we can absolutely still do films at the company that are big and successful and commercial. And of course, Ridley's films are the marquee films. They're the drivers of our company. But within that, Scott Free as a production entity, we want to be there for the next generation of, of, of great voices and you know, filmmakers, writers, actors. And that's what I've been trying to do over the last years and uh, hopefully have done it with some measure of... Uh, 
uh, <laughs> of, of success. But you know, it's 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 a long game, and uh, you know, you you really want to. Um, you know, I I'm, I'm excited to sort of continue this and um, keep working with really you know really great people and young people and people filmmakers from all you know all around the world. Yeah, I like I said, I felt very fortunate to meet you, Mike, and um, you know to even be considered in that in that lineup is pretty cool. Like the the uh, the other question I had for you too, and hmm. this is a little technical, but I know a lot of the people listening to the show ask me this all the time. They're like, how do you get your movies seen? Like how do producers find movies? Um, and I've tried to sort of illuminate how my stuff got seen. Um, but do you, let, let me ask you a couple questions. One, do you find, have you ever found a uh, director by going and seeing like a shorts program at a film festival? Um, I haven't actually gone to see a shorts film in a sh in a shorts uh, festival, but I have been sent shorts, and I often watch short films. Absolutely, that are that are doing the festival circuit, or short films that you know agents or managers or friends or colleagues or whoever you know you would say to me, check this out, watch this. So, uh, you know, festivals often I just don't have the time to go and see you know short films, but our, somebody in our team will. Um, you know, oftentimes when I'm at, you know, when we're at the festivals, we're either, we have our own movies there or there's something very pressing, blah, 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 the usual stuff. So, but the answer, the, the short answer, that was a ridiculous answer. What I just said, <laughs> but the, the short, the short, what a load of nonsense, but the, the short answer is, uh, you know, yes, is we will, of course, um, we will, of course, watch short films that come recommended and of course, you know, some are discoveries and, you know, some are things that, you know, find their way to you through more arbitrary ways. But yes, the answer is yes. Well, the reason why I was asking that question is that this is a conversation that I've had with a lot of young filmmakers where they, you know, submit to a shorts program festival and they assume that when they're programmed in that festival, that there's a bunch of producers in the audience and a producer is going to find them. And my argument with them is like most of the time when producers go to film festivals, they go there to see a feature. They have to go see a feature director or something that's got interest and uh, most of the time, shorts programs are programmed at the same time as whatever that feature thing is. Um, and so your best bet is to put your work either online or to get your work seen and uh, make it so that you can send that work to a producer or send that work to an agent or manager who will then send it to a producer uh, because your chances are a lot higher at that at that point. Do you agree with that or disagree with that? Um, I... I I do agree with that to to a point. Um, I think if your if your short film gets into a festival, um, you know, obviously that gives it a level of validation and probably anticipation, um, and you you will you know get it seen probably by people that have you know buyers, distributors, agents in a way that probably is a little bit more seamless um than making your film and just putting it up online i mean if I, again it all depends on what your intention is because if your intention is to sort of sell your short um and get an agent and a manager <clears throat> that's one thing if your intention is um to you know to to really sort of do the the festival circuit with your short and uh make it into a feature and you know you you know then then that's something else but I, the, you know we live in such a 
you know, the wall, the walls have sort of crumbled a bit. Do you know what I mean? In mm-hmm. terms mm-hmm. Of, of access to people. And so like I, I have received emails, you know, before of just random people have reached out to me and just said, I don't know you, but I got your email address and here's my short. Now I have watched some of them and uh, you know, I'll be frank with you. So most of them have been crap yeah. and some of them have been really good. And the, some the, usually what I say to people, if I watch some of it, that's, that's good. I say, listen, this is really cool. You should uh, try and find yourself a manager or, you know, I've forwarded it onto agents and managers before. And I've said, listen, I've just got this as an unsolicited submission, you know, do your thing. So, I think there are ways to connect the dots, you know, a lot of the, a, a lot of the time in terms of getting your work out there. Um, and, you know, some of them are traditional, some of them are non-traditional, you know, there's no, no there's no right or wrong way necessarily. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, you know, one thing we talk about a lot, Scott Free, is how do you cut through the noise, you know, and how do we, do you make your product feel urgent or different or unique or indelible? or something that you just have to pay attention to. And sometimes that can be good or bad, right? But <laughs> I think, but you know, I think there's so much product that surrounds us all the time. You know, Steven Soderbergh always talks about like the noise, right? And you just have to sort of get rid of it and focus on the thing at hand. And, you know, I remember that great speech he made about the state of, of cinema some years ago and how much that affected me. And so I think to, the advice I would give is, make something that is is really good i like put pressure on yourself send it to your friends get the harshest criticism you can look for patterns in in feedback and then when it's time and you believe that this film so represents you and your art and what you can do you know as a storyteller and what you can do technically that's when I think you that's the moment you send it to every bloody festival, you talk about online strategy, you get every agent's assistance email, manager's assistance, and you hit it hard. You know, mm-hmm. the problem I've found is some people do it too prematurely. And, you know, what they do is they'll send something that, in my opinion, just isn't yet ready. Yeah. And, and, you, and you get one shot with these guys, you know, agents, managers, producers, directors, they're busy people. They've got a lot of stuff going on. They're pulled in a lot of different directions. So before you get it out, really make sure you can stand by it, you know, and that that's the big that that to me in some ways, good stuff finds its way. I really believe that like really good art and good work it finds its way to the right people. Like you, you will not live in obscurity if you're a fucking genius. Right. I think the problem is, is that there's a lot of work out there now and I'm not saying people's intentions are bad. I'm just saying sometimes the execution isn't there, you know, and we have to be honest about that. You know, I wouldn't suddenly go and pretend I can be a dentist, you know, or (laughs) right. And and I, and I think unfortunately there's part of our culture that sort of rewards you know, this sort of fake notion of, of sort of success. And, you know, what really we need to do is put far more stringent benchmarks on quality. And uh, it's an issue that, you know, we, we all, again, and I'm I'm not trying to shit on anyone's dreams here, or, or I just think it's just an honest conversation we're not having in our artistic culture right now, where everybody makes something and they're a genius, right? Right, right. You know, it's, but the the real, again, but the truth is that's, you know, the truth is something different from that. But 
we need to get into a place again in our artistic community where there is uh, objectivity within subjectivity. And I think sort of film criticism and our dialogue and our, our conversations we're having about film and art have sort of gone in a different direction. And, you know, we've sort of come up with like that, oh, everybody needs to win a prize, you mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. thing. and that's not helping anybody and that's not helping the content uh, ecosystem in my in my opinion so i went off topic a little bit but you see how i i hopefully tried to bring that back to what you, <laughs> you did a great job mike <laughs> like i i completely agree with what you're saying and for for point of reference for my film guys like it took me a year of getting it to the place that it was and i had made a bunch of films prior to that and films that weren't ready and you you don't know until you make something special. And when you make something special and you push yourself, like we pushed ourselves so fucking hard to get that movie to look the way it did. And then we knew we had something special, but then you've heard my stories of how the film was too long and we couldn't get into film festivals. So our weird way around that was ultimately getting it into managers' hands. And that in itself is fascinating because management is like, it's like having another editor. So you, you actually have to go pre-buffer it with these guys before they send it out. Um, so it, it never would have got in, in Mike's hands if we hadn't got our management first and we hadn't gone through that whole process. But at the same token, I wouldn't have got Will involved as a writer. I wouldn't have got these folks involved if the piece didn't transcend anything that I had done before. Like I knew because of the quality and the people that were working on it, because of how it came out, that this thing was finally ready. I was finally ready as a storyteller to, you know, follow this thing and sit in a room and go, here's, here's what I was thinking. Um, and uh, it takes fucking time. And, and I know it sucks when you're younger. And I was there as like a young, you know, 20 something year old director. That's like, you know, you want it to, you want it to go. I mean, I still feel that way every day now where it's like, fuck, why is it not happening fast enough? But it's time. And, I think the important thing as a director in this industry is that time just becomes a valuable tool. Life experiences become a valuable tool. All these things are important as a storyteller. So even though it's fucking frustrating that you're not getting there as fast as you want to get there, just know that everything that you're living and feeling, you could put that in your toolbox to use later, you know? That's right. And that, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, and, and don't, you know, don't be scared that it's a marathon. You know, it's not a sprint all the time. It really is a marathon. And, you know, as you just said, Mike, wisdom, age, experience. I mean, didn't Oscar Wilde say experience is the name we give to our mistakes? Um, and <laughs> I, but I, I, I think these are all true truisms that, you know, one needs. And you're not just going to make a perfect film, you know, the first time you do it. You're probably not going to do it any time. But what you can do is is refine your technique and crafts and understand visual the visual language you know understand your storytelling vocabulary you know and and most importantly why are you telling this story like that's the first question i will often uh, ask you know writers and directors and sometimes the answer is undeniable in in what they've presented and sometimes it isn't but the important thing is to really before you go on the journey know why you're doing it and, you know, I, I think oftentimes there are different reasons uh, for that. Not all of them are pure and not all of them are good and not all of them are bad. But I, I do think you have to really know the journey you're going on. And, and if you're just going to make a film because I want to make money and I want to sell it to Netflix and I don't really care about its quality, 
and as long as it does well and it streams 58 million people in a month, then okay. I mean, you, you're not doing anything wrong, but that is, that's not something I want to be involved with. But it's, you're, there, there will be people that want to do that. Um, but you're, certainly, you're, you're not doing anything wrong, but that's sort of one approach to it. And if you're saying, you know, I, I need to tell the story of, you know, my, my mother and her, you know, her life and how she inspired me and it's so personal and here's my lookbook and here's this and here's that. Okay, brilliant. You know, and now is your personal, you know, is your, is your vision for this going to be universal? You know, is it going to sort of transcend itself? So I think look at the reasons and I, I just gave, you know, two, you know, slightly trite examples there, but, you know, look at the reasons why you're telling the story, you know, mm-hmm. what's your connection to it and how are you telling the story in the right way? You know, the, the, the it's, you know, are the, are the demands of your story, you know, being met. Um, and I think that's really, really important. I mean, one of the, one of the directors that inspires me so, so much and is probably, I think one of the great living directors is Lee Chang Dong, mm-hmm. um, the, the Korean master. And I look at all of his films and I've probably watched all of his films about five or six times. And I was lucky enough to meet director Lee when he was in LA on a rare trip a couple of years ago. And, you know, I asked him, you know, and he, he was out here promoting Burning, which if you haven't seen it, you know, it's, it's an absolute masterpiece, you know, like all his films really. And I, and I asked him, you know, through a translator, we were having breakfast and I said to him, you know, how do you know when it's time to, to make a film? Um, because there had been, you know, there, there were, uh, there was, I think a gap of seven years, I think between Burning and his prior film. And he said, you know, he said, most days, I, I, he said, most days I wake up, I know I, I couldn't, and I'm not ready. And it's, you know, and the world isn't speaking to me or my art isn't speaking to me. And he said, there are, and he said, you know, inspiration comes from all different places and I may have to fiddle with the script again, or maybe change a character. And he said, he said, listen, you know, sometimes this can take years, but, and he said, maybe I'm in a fortunate position because I also am a novelist and a painter that I have other artistic outlets and channels to sort of you know satisfy yeah different urges but he said the most important thing is he said never make something unless you fully you're there and he said you can feel it in your bones um and i think i was like wow what a great piece of advice he said he said to me so many things get made when they're not ready and they shouldn't and he said i think we all he said people suffer for that he said not you know in 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 their artistic pursuits economically so he said, you know, you'll, you'll know when you're ready. And he said, I know when I'm ready. And I was like, wow, what a, what a, what a great piece of life, <laughs> yeah. advice, right? Yeah, no, completely. Right. Yeah. Wow, man. Well, Mike, look, I can go on for hours with you. And, and uh, I appreciate you being on the show and uh, sharing all that stuff. And, and you've shared some really valuable stuff for our listeners. And these are questions that I get all the time. So I hope you guys are satisfied. Um, I just got to say, dude, like, uh, I'm happy to know you. I'm happy to call you a friend. And, um, I really want to do, I really want to work with you on something. I, I feel like we're going to make something that, uh, is an experience that, that we'll remember forever. So, um, like I, I appreciate you, brother. That's basically what I'm saying. <laughs> um, wow. I've got, I thank you so much. I, I feel like I've got some, uh, you know, residual emotion from watching our friend last night has bled into that. I love it. Um, <laughs> Don't give me shit for it. <laughs> I, uh, 
<laughs> I am. Uh, I that was very cheeky of me. No, I uh, thank you. I feel the same. You're, you know, a true friend. You've you've been doing such good work. You know, I love Twelve Kilometers. I'm excited to, you know, get this up on its legs with you as you know as soon as the time is right. And um, you know, I'm I'm really looking forward to you know to staying close and uh, collaborating. And you know, I think what you're doing here is is really uh, is is really a a great thing and allows people to sort of you know a peek behind the curtain and you know gives them inspiration and help and uh, uh, you know you're so generous with your time and um, I'm glad to have been a, a small part uh, uh, you know of this and I hope you know your listeners have found this a tiny bit useful. I think they, I think they have, Mike. Um, so thank you. Thank you for being on the show, dude. Uh, my pleasure, Mike. Thank you. All the best and uh, look forward to uh, chatting soon. So there it is. Today's episode. I feel like a weight has been lifted on me and on the show. I don't know how many times since we've started this show. I don't know how many times that I've had to be very cryptic about who I'm working with, about what's going on with 12KM. Like I said, what's happening with it is that Mike, and we didn't mention him on the show, but I'm going to mention him here. Uh, another producer at Scott Free, uh, Sam Rostin, he is also a big part of getting this movie made. So Mike and Sam uh, really loved 12KM. I ended up going in and having that meeting with them. And I think I should have Will. Will finally should come on the show and we'll talk about the, the, the uh, pitching process for this because we uh, walked around with the short, which I had, which thankfully got me uh, interest from uh, Gotham Group, which is the management group that reps me. The short got me that interest, but uh, because I had hired Cruda, to be a cinematographer, which was the first time I had worked with him, which was the first time I was really hiring an outside cinematographer. Um, Kruda was friends with uh, Will because he had done a movie with him in the past. And so uh, Will saw the short and then approached me and said, hey, I'd love to write a feature with you. And I had already outlined a different version of the feature, but uh, looking at Will's work and looking at his history with the blacklist and and all the stuff that he had written, I was like, this guy's so much better than I am as a screenplay writer. Um, so that team up was smart. And so you have to make right decisions, right? It isn't about just you and your movie. It's not about your ego. You have to team yourself up with the right people. And the more uh, people that are at the top of their game that you're teaming up with, the more access you get. The more people know somebody, like so-and-so knows this person, so-and-so knows that person. And then eventually, your stuff gets up. And I got the interest from Gotham Group because I had uh, my friend Izzy wrote an article about 12KM and that got posted on, I think it was Twitch Film at the time. And one of the assistants from Gotham Group was sort of going through, from what I understand, was going through um, shorts and posts online and they found that article. And that article only had the trailer. It didn't even have the short in it. So they ended up reaching out to me and asking if they could see the short. And then uh, we went to, to meet with them when I came out to Los Angeles and they said, just pitch us your idea for the feature. Will and I had written this thing remotely, had never even really hung out in real life. And so when I went to uh, Los Angeles, 
to hang out with him to do this pitch, we basically sat down and had coffee and had a first date. We'd been talking for so long over the internet and over the phone, um, and so then we met and then immediately went to pitch. And we pitched it to Gotham, and then Gotham was like, we'll set you up with a bunch of meetings for this. And they were really great about it. Um, my manager over there, Justin, is really great. So uh, that's how we ultimately ended up uh, going and doing the sort of route through Hollywood to meet with all these different production companies with 12Cam. Um, and met with some greats. Like I got to go in the offices of Michael Bay. I got to go in the offices of, of uh, Sam Raimi. Uh, we sort of worked our way through. And um, it wasn't until the end of that week that I was told that we were also going to get to Scott Free. And of course, like can you imagine Scott Free's logo running in front of 12KM, right? So of course, that was my goal. And, and uh, wanted to really sort of prove ourselves. And I was happy that we... Uh, book them at the end of the week because Will and I had been through our pitch process and we learned a lot on the pitching that we did for 12KM. And I can do a whole episode on the pitch booklet and everything that we put together for that. Um, but because we had refined our stuff at the end of the week, we went in and pitched to these guys and I was very comfortable. And I think that the most important thing about that comfortability was that I wasn't so hyper-focused on my performance as pitch. I was more focused on these two gentlemen that were sitting across from us. And I really sort of was able to get out of the pitch and sort of have conversations about life with them. And we connected pretty hard on that stuff. And I think besides the movie being great, I think that the other reason why these guys signed on was because we really formed a connection. Um, and I love Sam, I love Mike. Uh, they're two really great guys. And uh, it's gonna take some time for 12Cam to be made into a feature film because these things just take time. Um, but it is in development with those guys. Uh, and it's very fucking exciting. <laughs> to say the least. And it's very nice to be able to say this on the air and to be able to put that out there. Um, so if you guys are excited about the movie, if you've seen 12Cam, if you're a supporter of it, um, thank you guys and everybody we have over 200, almost 300 uh, reviews on, let me look and see right now. We have over 300 reviews on a short film on IMDb. Hold on, let's take a look. Stand by. I, there's nothing better than listening to Mike surf the internet on a podcast. Am I right? Let's take a look here. Uh, 258 reviews, right? You guys have been amazing with our review process for this. Um, all really great reviews. Everything's pretty high, actually. We did, we did pretty good with this. Um, if you haven't seen the movie yet, when I put this episode out this week, I'll run a very special sort of promotion with it. If you haven't seen the movie yet, drop me a note on Instagram and uh, tell me what you thought of Godzilla vs. Kong. That's the question. Okay, so let me know what you think of Godzilla vs. Kong. I'm going to get off this fucking podcast and watch it this afternoon. I'm pumped. Um, let me know what you thought, and uh, I'll send you a link to see it. And then in exchange, I'll probably have you write a review. Okay, so do that. And if you guys are fans of 12KM, just know that we're still working on it. We are trying to make something bigger and better. And yes, you should be as excited as I am about knowing who it's with, because... Uh, if anything, 
uh, Scott Free is known for fucking quality. And uh, to have, be in the same space with Ridley is just fucking, you know, insane. So thank you everybody for your support. Thank you for your patience. Uh, and thank you uh, for being a part of this show. And I hope to have bigger and better news coming at you over the next couple of months. Um, and we've got some good news on who's there's front that I'm not allowed to talk about yet. Um, but things are in motion. And I know a lot of you guys are like, okay, so Mike starts to make movies of what happens with this podcast. I am at the same time trying to protect this show. So I've got plans for how this show will still exist while I'm directing. But remember, I am a director first, guys. So I oftentimes am going to get pulled away to do this stuff in order to make this shit. And I also believe that, like, what right do I have to be giving you fucking advice if I'm not dealing with it and going through it myself, right? In a world where everybody's a fucking, you know, a professional on shit on YouTube, I try to, like, do the shit that I talk about. So... I promise you guys, you get access to what I'm doing and um, it'll be worth it. So stick with us and tell your friends. Do me a favor this week, uh, write to me. Let me know what you think of this episode. Uh, let me know what you think about the team up, the news with 12KM, and then try to get three of your friends to listen to the show. All right. Thanks, everybody. I'm not going to draw this out. Uh, I have really great episodes on the way, really great guests. Um, so tune in for next Tuesday as we do our regular release. Uh, and thank you everybody for listening.